0: Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, and we're returning this morning to verses 1 to 14 of Matthew 22 and the parable of the marriage feast. We looked uh, last time at verses 1 through 7 of Matthew 22. We'll pick it back up and uh, finish through verse 14 this morning. As we're looking here at uh, this parable in Matthew chapter 22, we are, we are really addressing the question of Jewish unbelief. The question of Jewish unbelief. And the question that sort of runs underneath all of this is, is why is it that, that some of the children of Abraham believe and so many do not? Why do some believe but so many do not? Why is it that the nation rejected her king, her messiah, and in large degree continue to do so even to this day. One could call it the mystery of unbelief. The mystery of unbelief. This is just contextually, to get it locked into your mind again, this is the third parable that Jesus uh, addresses the nation with on this Tuesday It's still early, relatively early, on Tuesday morning of Passion Week. And he has uh, told two previous parables. This is the third parable he tells. And this parable is addressing this very issue of why is it that so many are excluded from Messiah's kingdom. And it is a judgment parable. It is a judgment parable. And it transitions in this parable from the, the guilt... And judgment to to come upon the leadership of the nation who have openly rejected him and are plotting even at this point in time to arrange to murder him to a more widespread and general guilt of the nation as a whole who have falsely turned out to welcome him into the city while their hearts are very cold and indifferent to him. It's a difficult, difficult parable. And what it really draws out is, is a is the history of the nation. The history of the nation, that is, that, that they have received many, many repeated invitations for their Messiah's kingdom, and yet they have been cold and indifferent to them, and yea, even hostile at times. And so many, many are invited, but few respond. The parable we noted last time is broken down into basically three scenes with a conclusion. Three scenes and a conclusion. We looked at scene one last week. We'll look more closely at scenes two and three this week and the conclusion. But just to, again, remind you, scene one in verses one through seven. Let me just go ahead and read it for you. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. and He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. As we looked last week at this section, we spent some time talking basically about three things. Again, just to remind you, we, we talked about the, the cultural nature of a wedding and how it is similar to ours in some ways, but vastly different in others. The reality that a, that a wedding feast and a wedding invitation was a, was a very important uh, community kind of event. And so to turn it down, and particularly to turn it down in such a cavalier way, was a deliberate uh, slight to the family. It was insulting to their hospitality. It was, it was uh, beyond the pale of what one could, could reasonably do or what one could reasonably expect to have done to them. Beyond that, when it is the king's uh, invitation, that is, the wedding ceremony is for the king's son, the, his heir, and thus the lord of those who are invited... It is, um, it is unacceptable to turn it down. And to turn it down as it is turned down here, as it's presented in this parable, ultimately uh, resulting in the violent persecution and death of the very messengers who are inviting them to this wedding feast. It is little wonder that the king is enraged. In fact, the wonder is that the king was not enraged earlier and that he demonstrated such remarkable patience to continue to send invitation after invitation after invitation. Further, we noted last time that eventually that patience runs out. Eventually that patience runs out and resulted in a righteous anger and indignation that poured forth, resulting, verse 7, in the destruction both of those and their city. And, Last time we noted uh, the uh, historical correspondence that one can find in the history of the nation of Israel, tracking all the way through even here to, I believe, in verse 7, a prophecy of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. And really, uh, God being sovereign over all such things, it it is the judgment that came upon his ancient people as a result of their mistreatment of his emissaries, resulting most fully in their rejection and death of his own son. So Israel's rebellious rejection was scene one. This morning we look at scene two, beginning in verse eight, and we're calling this the church's expansive invitation. Israel's rebellious rejection followed by the church's expansive invitation in verses eight through ten. Verse eight, then he, that is the king, said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. The king judges them as not being worthy. That is, they have failed to respond to his invitation, the result of which they are deemed by him to be unworthy. Now, the word um, unworthy is used earlier by Jesus in the gospel Uh, back in uh, chapter 10, and it's worth a look back there quickly so you understand uh, what he is communicating here. Back in uh, chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, this is near the end of his Galilean ministry, and he is sending them out uh, not to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, verse 5, but rather in a focused, disciplined, decisive way, verse 6, to the lost sheep Of the house of Israel to preach to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this corresponds, of course, in the parable here in chapter 22 to these servants sent out and saying, The feast is ready, come to the feast. And it's interesting, he says to them, As I send you out, that uh, verse 11, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. If the house is worthy, verse 13, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that city or that house, shake the dust off your feet. I'll say to you, truly, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So you're introduced to the concept of worthy and unworthiness back there in chapter 10. and And the idea is... That if you respond in faith to the invitation of the Messiah, you are judged worthy. If you refuse the invitation of the Messiah, you are judged unworthy. You are rejected as unworthy. So back here in the parable in chapter 22, where uh, the, God's words in the mouth of the king, he says to his slaves... The wedding is ready, but those who were invited, that is the nation of Israel, repeatedly invited and repeatedly, willingly, decisively uh, rejecting that, they were not worthy, and you can fill in the ellipsis here, of entrance into Messiah's kingdom and are judged severely for it. Go therefore, verse 9, Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. The king has rained down judgment upon those who have spurned his invitation, those who have insulted his dignity. But there is still a wedding to be had and still a feast to give, right? He has he has slaughtered his animals. The feast is close at hand and he is not going to have his wedding hall empty. The unbelief of man will not thwart the purposes of the king. So he orders his slaves to go out, to go beyond those to whom he has originally offered and invited to his kingdom, those that were supposed to come and experience the blessing of the messianic feast. And instead, the slaves, the messengers, and we might say his prophets and apostles, they are to go out, verse 8, and they, uh, verse 9 rather, and they are to go out into the main highways. The main highways. And the, and the, the term here just, it speaks of the crossroads. It speaks of the, of the major intersections that lead into and out of the city. They are to go out beyond the city is the idea. They are to go out to the place where people are found. Where people are traversing back and forth and coming and going and life is happening. They are to go there and they are to extend the invitation. They are to extend the invitation. As many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Verse 10, those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, uh, a couple of observations, a couple of observations I think that we can draw out from this, that it would be worth uh, at least pointing out, and uh, you can contemplate them on your own, and the implications of them on your own, but I've got four things that I want to just... uh, point out to you. Four observations here out of these verses. The first is is simply this, that, the, that this secondary invitation, if I can call it that, is to go out far and wide, right? Uh, go out, verse 9, to the main highways, to, to go outside of the limited... Uh, invitation, which we saw earlier there in chapter 10, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, go out far and wide. So there's this, this idea that there's a real extensiveness to this invitation. Beyond that, uh, they are to go out indiscriminately, right? As many as you find there, verse 9, invite to the wedding feast. And they go out into the streets and they gather together and, and everyone they find, they gather together. Notice it says both evil and Good. Both evil and good. And the idea is that is that, that you go out, they are to go out and they are to, to make this invitation to come to Messiah's wedding feast, and they are to make it indiscriminately, but out reference to the person's present or prior background, both the evil and the good. They are to just make this indiscriminate invitation to come, to come. Of the feast. Third, they are not to engage in any pre-selection in the process, right? It says that you are to invite them, as many as you find, both evil and good. And so there's not a pre-selection process going on. They are to just spread the good news of the invitation to as many people as they find, as many people as they find. They're not to engage in this pre-selection process. They're not to say, okay, you, I will invite you, but we're not going to invite you. We're inviting everyone. Everyone come. Fourth, just observations here. The method of, of spreading the invitation is active, not passive. It is active, not a passive That is, they ought to go to the places where the people are, right? Go out to the main highways. Go out among the population indiscriminately, actively, not passively. Throw out the net as wide as you can and invite them all to come in. Now, what's going on? What in the world is going on? What What is Jesus getting at here? What he is getting at is is that there's a change happening in the program of God. There's a change happening in the program of God. That is, his ancient people have rejected the gospel of the kingdom. They have refused the invitation. And now, it's going to spread to the nations. It's going to go out far and wide, and it's going to go out indiscriminately. And unlike Israel, these guests will respond. These guests will respond a little bit later. We'll, we'll see here that the wedding hall becomes filled, it says. These guests respond to the invitation. And certainly a reading of the book of Acts Uh, demonstrates just that reality, right? Israel remains firmly uh, entrenched in their opposition to the message of the Messiah, and yet when it goes to the Gentiles, they are overwhelmed and overjoyed with the opportunities, and they flood in to this new thing God is doing called the church. Now the priority remains the same. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for the... Jew first, and then also for the Greek or the Gentile. So the priority of the message continues to remain to go to the nation of Israel. It is a message that came to them first, but it is wider than them now. It is a message to go out indiscriminately to the nations, far and wide, to both evil and good. And from the time of Pentecost forward, that's exactly what happens. And here we are this morning, gathered here, having been brought in by the slaves of the king who have spoken the message to us. And we have been gathered. We have been gathered. Israel refused despite the repeated invitations. The Gentiles respond to theirs. And it's an indiscriminate invitation that fills the wedding hall with guests. Some of whom don't belong. Some of whom don't belong. Gather all you find, verse 10, both evil and good. The wedding hall will be filled, but some in the wedding hall don't belong. They don't belong. In a little bit we'll see an illustration of that very reality. Now, this presents a a conundrum to us. It's the conundrum of what's called the messy church. The messy church. And, beloved, uh, it, it, it vexes those who are passionate about a pure church. A church in which everyone who is part is a believer on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ in which there's no shade of doubt or question over their commitment to the Lord at all. The pure church. But it's not the reality of the world in which the Lord has placed us. It's not the reality of this present age. We live in the time of the messy church. And Jesus spoke of this time. He spoke of this time. He spoke of it earlier in Matthew chapter 13. He actually gave several parables in Matthew chapter 13, speaking of this exact same reality. And what he says is that that at the end of the age, before the coming of of the age to come, that is, before the Messiah's kingdom actually comes in, there will be a time of sorting, a time of sifting, a time of judgment. But before that time, we live in a messy age. We live in a messy age. Someday a judgment's coming, a judgment that is individual, not corporate. A judgment that is, that is illustrated, beginning here in verse 11, with what I'm calling scene three, God's unavoidable inspection. God's unavoidable inspection. Verse Eleven. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The man was speechless. Now the scene is... uh, The slaves have gone out indiscriminately far and wide as the king has commanded. They have done the work. They have have brought in a vast crowd. They have gathered them in without uh, reference to their status, good and evil. They've just captured and pulled them all in, invited them to the feast. And before the feast is to begin, the king comes in and and, uh, checks out the crowd. That's his priority or his prerogative, isn't it? I mean, it's after all his feast. So he comes in to to oversee the crowd, to inspect his guests. And it says he observes one here that that is not properly attired. And he inquires of that man. Now, I I believe what Jesus is communicating here is is just an illustration of one. I think there is more than one guest here improperly attired. But all it takes is one to communicate the point. So he comes in and and he observes this. This man who is not properly attired. That is that he, that he is at the feast and he's not dressed for it. Now, notice how the king addresses him, verse 12. He, he addresses him as friend. He addresses him as friend. And, and I, I think that is, is, uh, is spoken that way because the king is acknowledging that this man is one of the invited guests. He is one of the invited guests. He's been pulled in. And so he confronts him. He says to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was muzzled, literally. Speechless. The man has nothing to say. No defense. Guilty. He is guilty. And he has nothing that he can say. He doesn't offer an excuse at all. Gee, I was busy. I, you know, what? nothing. Nothing. He is absolutely silent. He is speechless. He is muzzled. No dissents for his insulting and offensive behavior, because that's what it is. To be there for the wedding feast and to be improperly attired. Now, what in the world is all this about? What is Jesus communicating? I'm glad you asked. Now, there are, um, there are basically and historically two understandings of what the message, what, the, what he's communicating in this part of this parable. Two. And they are in competition with one another, as you might expect. Each of them has much to commend itself. So at the end of the morning, if, uh, if you like number one, praise the Lord. If you uh, think number two is a better explanation, praise the Lord. And uh, when we get to the kingdom, the Lord can straighten us out. But there are two basic understandings, and I, and I share them both with you because uh, there's much to, compend, uh, to commend both of them. What is going on here? What is being symbolized here? And that's the question. What is being symbolized by this man who, who is not properly attired at the wedding feast? The feast is about to begin, and, and he doesn't have the right clothes on. What is all that about? What is it symbolic? Now the first understanding here is this: is that the man who, who, who is found out by the king here, improperly attired, it symbolizes those who attempt to enter Messiah's kingdom without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is, they are seeking to come into the kingdom of Messiah wrapped in a robe of their own righteousness. They have provided their own wedding clothes, as it were, and they are offensive to the king. They're offensive to the king. In other words, they, they, are, they are seeking to, to gain admittance and entrance into the Messiah's kingdom based upon their own self-effort, their own good works, their own accumulated righteousness. Righteousness. A righteousness which the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 is as filthy rags. Filthy rags. Now, this this interpretation is old. Many of you have probably heard of it. Uh, Many of you probably think this is exactly what he's talking about. It's actually as old as Augustine in the 4th century. It goes a long way back. Support for this, um, this interpretation of this part of the passage is, is, uh, is drawn from um, supposed Jewish wedding custom. That is, that the, the, uh, the uh, person who hosted the feast, the wedding feast, would supply wedding garments to all his guests. There would be some sort of official wedding garment that he would provide to each and every guest in order for them to come in and all be properly clothed in, in clean, uh, sparkling attire to be part of of the wedding feast, and supposedly that's part of Jewish culture, and uh, and those uh, who understand it this way will speak to a number of different passages, re- reference a number of passages in Scripture, in Genesis, uh, in Judges, in Second Kings, where there is reference made to garments, uh, several of which in the context of an overall wedding, and they'll say this, see, this is the support of this basic idea. Beyond that, they'll point out passages like Isaiah 61, verse 10, now Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. And and I'm just not going to be able to take you there because of time this morning. You can write them down and look them up on your own. And they'll say, see this this kind of... this demonstrates this reality that to come into Messiah's kingdom, one must be clothed with wedding garments supplied by the host of the feast. And those garments, according to Isaiah 61 and verse 10 and Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, are the righteousness of God which he supplies. That's how the, the explanation goes. And beloved, that is an absolute theological reality. It is an absolute theological reality. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty-one that entrance into Messiah's kingdom comes only by receiving in faith the righteousness of God in Christ. Right? He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is absolutely true theologically. But that doesn't mean that's what this passage teaches. Right doctrine, wrong text. Right doctrine, wrong text. There are some problems with this explanation. For example, there is no historical evidence of any kind of certainty that uh, at, at Jewish weddings that the host of the feast actually supplied wedding garments it's an assertion that is made that is lacking historical evidence. Secondly, when you take the time to look up the passages that are cited in support of it in Genesis and Judges and Second Kings, um, it doesn't really say that. Yes, there's references to garments, and, and yes, it's a, several of them, it's a reference to a wedding, but that is not the same as saying the host supplied wedding garments. So, for example, the Judges passage is about Samson, who, uh, who, who says, I'll give 30 changes of clothes to anybody who can guess this riddle. That doesn't exactly prove the point. Doesn't exactly prove the point. It speaks about the value of garments in that culture, but it doesn't really prove the point that the host of the wedding feast supplies garments to every single person who attends the feast. Beyond that, and finally, the references in Isaiah 61, verse 10 and Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, refer to a bride being clothed with the garment of righteousness, not the wedding guests. So it's a reference to the bride being clothed with a garment of righteousness. Again, it doesn't really prove the point. So there are some problems with this view. If that's your view, sorry. There's another view, I think a better view. I think a better view, so here's the other one. The other one is that the, the reference here to the garments that are expected to be worn. I mean, in the, in the parable here, the king gets here and, he, and he's shocked that this guy does not have on the appropriate attire. And when he asks him, how come you don't? The man is speechless. He can offer no defense. The, the other explanation of that is that the wedding garments here uh, speak of a life appropriate to a citizen of Messiah's kingdom, that the garment is a reference to the person's life, to their life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and and verse 10, right, that that we are, verses 8 to 10, that we are saved by grace through faith. That's not uh, of ourselves, right? It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say that, that we have been saved for the good works that have been predestined ahead of time for us, and we're to walk in them. So there is this, there is this um, reality that, that being a citizen of the kingdom, being uh, permitted access into the Messiah's kingdom, uh, it comes with an expectation of a different kind of life, a new style of life. And the basic idea here is that, is that this evil man, rather than going home and, and, and dressing for the wedding, insults his host by showing up in his filthy garments and, and presuming upon the graciousness of his host. Basically saying, hey, listen, you gave me the invitation, just as I am, and that's what I did. I came just as I am. And I'm still that way. And I'm still that way. But Jesus is speaking here about the necessity of the citizens of Messiah's kingdom living according to the righteous commands of that kingdom, of that kingdom. Said another way, Jesus is speaking about the interplay between faith and works. The very same topic that James, right, the half-brother of the Lord, brings up in James chapter 2, verses 14 and following, where he says, hey, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my, what? By my works. A follower of Messiah lives a life that reflects their king. That reflects their king. Listen, the invitation to the kingdom is free. It went out far and wide. It has no strings attached to it. But entrance into that kingdom will come only to those whose lies reflect The high moral and ethical standards of that kingdom. We are saved by grace through faith, but it is a grace that transforms. It transforms. This is exactly in line with the the message that Jesus has has been preaching. The message that John the Baptist preaches. Preached, right? When he came and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? That, the, that someone who has repented and prepared themselves to enter the Messiah's kingdom uh, brings forth r- fruit in keeping with righteousness. Unlike the nation of Israel and its leadership, who said they were ready for the kingdom, but whose lives reflected no change at all. Now, as I say, I'm inclined towards this second interpretation. I think it better fits the the context of both the book of Matthew and, in particular, this parable. This parable. What it says is that that a person's true commitment to the king is verified by their life. That it takes more than verbal commitment. It takes more than saying, I believe. It takes actually believing. And believing transforms as the grace of God is operative in a person's life. Now, no matter which interpretation one favors, whether it's a reference to the robe of righteousness supplied by God or whether it's a reference to an exchanged life transformed by the grace of God, the result is the same. One absent the wedding clothes, one who has insulted the king, ends up being excluded from the kingdom in a most frightening and forceful way, right? Verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I showed you last week that that, that uh, expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness, is, is used to speak of all of those who have been excluded from Messiah's kingdom. Outside the kingdom of God is only darkness and torment. Only darkness and torment. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 13 the the subtle shift from where earlier it's been his slaves that have been going wide and far and spreading the invitation, right? To verse 13, a reference to the servants. It is a different word. And to the role of the servant. The role of the slave was to indiscriminately express out the invitation. The role of the servant is to sort, to sift, to turn over to judgment. This is a new group to do the king's bidding. I believe he is speaking about his angels. I believe the reference here to the, to the servants is a reference to the holy angels. And their role in purging in preparation of Messiah's kingdom. Before the advent of the kingdom of Messiah here on Earth, there will be a sifting, sorting judgment when all those pretenders will be excluded. Again, this, uh, this angelic activity is not something that we've not encountered before. Let me just remind you. Go back to Matthew 13, where these concepts are introduced to us there, in the parables of the kingdom. Chapter 22, by the way, is just another kingdom parable. But in Matthew chapter 13 and, and verse 41, Matthew 13 and verse 41, where, where Jesus is explaining the parable of the tares, Right, And he says that they're going to grow up together side by side, the true wheat and the tares, and they're not to be, you're not to attempt to sift or sort them out before the end. But when the end comes, verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks on all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a the role of the holy angels... To at the end to take out the tares before kingdom comes. It's spoken of here in chapter thirteen and beginning in verse forty seven in the parable of the dragnet, where there the, 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 the servants are, are spread the dragnet far and wide and they and they pull it through the water and they gather all kinds of fish, both edible and inedible. And then there's a sorting process, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this notion of a a wide and indiscriminate preaching ministry followed by an individual Selective sorting and judgment done by the angels is everything that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. He's talking about again here in chapter 22. A sorting process. And that takes us, finally, to verse 14, Jesus' mysterious conclusion to this whole matter. Verse 14. He finishes and he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's the big idea, by the way, of not just this parable, but all three parables. It's a summary statement of the message of all three parables. Many in Israel have been called to put their faith in Messiah, but actually a very small number do so. Let me take you back to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, where Jesus says there, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beloved, he is speaking about the mystery of unbelief. He's talking about the the secret sovereign work of God in his electing grace in which a a wide and indiscriminate proclamation of of the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, goes out. And yet very, very few respond. Now, in context here, he is talking about the nation of Israel. So I want to address that first. Anything beyond that is merely application. He is speaking about the nation of Israel, and he is speaking about the reality of the nation of Israel that has had this long and and historic opportunity and yet turned it down. And this is a big question. That a serious question that demands serious attention. In fact, it is such a serious question that is the, the unbelief of God's ancient people that the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, where he provides his most complete and, and comprehensive presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, spends three chapters of the book of Romans to answer this very question. And Paul answers it in Romans this way, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapter 9 of the book of Romans, what Paul says is that the reason that many are called but few are chosen is because of the secret and sovereign electing grace of God. That's the message of chapter 9 of Romans. Again, any message you draw beyond that is an application of that truth, but it is speaking about the rejection of the nation. Paul then goes to chapter 10, and he says, okay, so is it all just because of the secret and sovereign election of God that the the clay can't speak back to the potter, and that's the end of it? Then he takes it up in chapter 10, and he says, the reason Israel has rejected their Messiah is because of their stubborn refusal, seeking to establish their own righteousness and and turning their back on his. That's the message of chapter 10 the book of Romans. All day long, he says, I have held out my hands to a stubborn and rebellious people. Is that the end of them? Good thing for chapter 11. Or in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, what Paul says is there is a time coming for the nation when she will repent. And she will receive her Messiah. Chapter 11 and verse 26 And thus all Israel shall be saved. Why? Verse 29 Because the calling, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Thank you. Irrevocable. Here, Matthew 22, he is speaking about Jewish unbelief. He is speaking of Jewish unbelief. Secondarily, unbelief in general. Unbelief in general. Now, what do we make of all this? What can we make of all of this? i have four things for you, just quickly. Again, you're going to have to develop them on your own. But number one, simply this. Exposure to the general call of God does not guarantee entrance into Messiah's kingdom. Oh, how I wish it were so. Oh, how I wish it were so. Exposure to the gospel does not guarantee saving faith. At the end of the age, there will be an individual judgment that will determine those who gain entrance and those who do not. Secondly, the gospel invitation is open to all. It is wide. It is indiscriminate. It is active, not passive. It is to go to all peoples throughout the globe. But when we come to the end of this book, he will say, right? Go into all the nations and preach this gospel. Yet, yet absent the, the saving work of God in the life of an individual, none would believe. This is a mystery. It's a hard mystery. In fact, the only people who understand this mystery are first-year seminary students. <laughs> when they get to their second year, they, they don't have the answer anymore. Let me turn you to chapter 11 just very, very quickly. Very quickly. Chapter 11. I just want to show you that, listen, God is not embarrassed by this mystery because there's not a mystery to him. Chapter 11, verse 25, I'm just going to read it to you. And just what I want you to see here when I read this to you, to the end of the chapter, is I want you to see that right next to each other is a statement about God's secret, sovereign, electing grace and a wide-open invitation to come and believe. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, it is an absolute, wide-open, indiscriminate invitation to come to the feast, to taste and see that the Lord is good. By the way, we all know and believe that God is sovereign in salvation. And the reason we know and believe that is because we pray for the salvation of the lost And when we pray, what is it we're doing? We are asking God to do something. We're asking God to to transform this life of unbelief into a life of faith. If you didn't believe God is the one who does it, then you would not pray. But you pray. Because you know. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. Third. those who turn out not to be chosen have clearly made their own choice not to believe. Again, back to the parable and the repeated invitations that have gone out. And they have willingly rejected. They have willingly rejected. Over And over, again, verse 3, look at the end of verse 3. They were unwilling, it says. That is a verb that speaks of the person's uh, desires. They did not desire it. Those who do not believe do not want to believe. There will never be anyone at the end who stands in the judgment and says, I wanted to believe, but I couldn't. No one. Fourth and finally, a claim to belong to Jesus without a corresponding change of affections. And consequently, one's desires and goals points to a person whose attachment to Messiah's kingdom is superficial and precarious. Superficial and precarious. Listen, that was the state of the nation of Israel. Oh, son of David, Hosanna! We have no king but Caesar. Give us Barabbas and crucify him. His blood be upon us and our children. Children. For we, during this age, this age when the the message is going out indiscriminately, in all the highways and byways, listen, salvation is by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. But saving faith transforms an individual into a child of God and they begin to show a family resemblance. As the Apostle Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 2, at the end, judgment will come based upon one's life. How one lives ultimately leads to one's entrance pass or refusal the mystery of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we confess right now that in and of ourselves there is no good thing, nothing to incline you towards us. We can make no claim upon your kingdom. We are entirely dependent upon Christ. It is his sacrificial death. It is his resurrection life that atone for our sin, that transforms us, that makes us a child of God. Our Father, although we do not live as we would desire, we don't live out our best intentions. Oh, God, we want to be like Christ. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's wrath. Oh, do your mighty work among us, we pray, in Jesus' name.